Welcome to Casting Hope, a sermon podcast of Hope Presbyterian Church in Columbus, Ohio. My name is Joe Hack, lead pastor at Hope, and we are so glad you're listening in wherever you are. In this moment of social distancing, we hope that our audio and streaming resources meet you where you are at and help you stay connected to God and to His promises. The book of Isaiah, if you turn your Bible like just right to the middle, you're going to land in Isaiah, so that's easy. Usually at Hope, we press pause in our sermon series, whatever we're working through, to focus on Advent. If you've been with us, you know this. But this year, we don't have to. That's great. Uh, We don't have to because for the next four weeks, we're going to be looking at what the Hebrew Bible calls the latter prophets. Okay, The Hebrew Bible has all the same books as our Old Testament uh, but they organize them a little bit differently. So first there is Torah, which are the first five books of the Bible. That's the same. But what comes next is called the former prophets and the latter prophets, okay? We actually just finished the former prophets. I bet you didn't know that. We just finished the former prophets. They are Joshua, Judges, Samuel, and Kings. And that means the latter prophets are next. And they are Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and what are called the 12 minor prophets. Those are the prophets in your Old Testament that are like a page long or two pages long, sometimes more. And this is amazing timing because this is the first uh, Sunday of Advent, as we heard. Advent comes from the Latin word adventus, which means arrival. If you ever wondered what Advent means, it means arrival. And so in this season, the four weeks leading up to Christmas, we learn to wait on the arrival of the promised king. That's what all this is about. Well, the latter prophets are in God's story to help us do just that. And so for the next four weeks, we will wait on Jesus with the prophets. Sound good? The latter prophets. As I said, it begins with the magnificent book of Isaiah. And so that's what we're going to explore this morning. But before we do that, let's pray. Lord, with the words of my mouth and with the meditation of all of our hearts here together in this assembly be pleasing and acceptable to you. We know in Christ that that is true. You are a rock and you are a redeemer. And we pray that you would set the eyes of our hearts on King Jesus through the book of your prophet Isaiah. And it's in Jesus' name we pray this. Amen. Well, I live in Grandview Heights, which is not far from here, which means our kids don't have a school bus. That usually means they ride their bikes to school. But on days like this, where it's cold and it's rainy, it means that I drive them to school. Well, the other day we were running a little bit late, which is really stressful. (laughs) If you've ever been there, it's like a terrible way to start your day. Um, But I was making good time. I was kind of like scooting up First Avenue towards their building. But then this traffic light on the corner of 1st Avenue and Oakland Avenue had other plans. This light is slow. It's like agonizingly slow. Especially when you're late taking your kids to school. Because here's what happens. Here's what happens. 
Everybody is in line on First Avenue, like me, and they want to turn right into the school. But whenever the green is, the light is green, that means that kids walking the school are crossing the intersection. So like one car gets through per light cycle, and that is agonizing for somebody like me. <laughs> Blocking our right turn. <clears throat> Turns out kids get the right of way when they cross the street. Uh, well, I hate waiting in traffic. Um, so I told my kids at this moment, I said, look, the car, look at the car in front of you. Make note of the car in front of you. I'm going to beat this white SUV to school. You watch. And so what I did is I turned out of the line. I made this huge looping detour. I arrived to the same exact light that I was, but now facing in a different direction. And guess what? Got caught by the light and watched. We had a front row seat, actually, to the white SUV turning in nice and calmly into our school. I hate waiting. I would rather move in the wrong direction than wait in the right direction. Can I get an amen? I would rather move in the wrong direction than wait in the right direction. I think we all feel this way. And not just in the car, but in all of life. So when things look bad around us, what do we do? We take matters into our own hands. So what is occupying, I'll ask you, your headspace most of these days? What worry? What concern? Well, if you're like me, you're not calmly bringing that concern to the Lord, but you're driving around like crazy. Trying to fix it. In stress, I think we usually enter into one of two default modes. The first I'll call fix-it mode, and the second I'll call fake-it mode. And so with fix-it mode, we look at a problem, and we basically say, I'm going to do X, Y, and Z in order to feel safe. And then in fake-it mode, we simply say, I am okay, and meanwhile, we distract ourselves with so many things around us. Pretending that everything is okay. In both cases, it's as if we are at a stoplight, we're stuck, we're late, we're embarrassed, we're shamed, we're stressed out. And instead of calmly entrusting that moment to God and whatever it is we're carrying to God, we just drive, even if it's in the opposite direction, at least gives us an illusion of control, right? At least it makes us feel like something is moving in the problem that is facing us. But in the end, we're just as late as before, or at worst, we get lost or wreck the car. Well, Isaiah is a prophet with a very simple message. Isaiah is a prophet with a very simple message. And as I tell you that, I'm going to grab my projector thing. His message is simple, and you can see it in this chapter right here. Chapter 30, verse 15. Through Isaiah, God says, only in returning to me and resting in me will you be saved. In quietness, in confidence is your strength. But you would have none of it. You said, no, we will Get our help from Egypt. They will give us swift horses for riding into battle. But the only swiftness you are going to see is the swiftness of your enemies chasing you. 
In a minute, I'm going to help you understand the big picture of Isaiah, which will help you understand all these references to Egypt and to them chasing you. But for now, I just want you to focus on this core message found in the first few lines of this verse. The core message of Isaiah is a paradoxical victory in resting. In quietness and in confidence and in resting and returning, you will be rescued. You will be saved. God says, don't fix it. Don't fake it, certainly. Just rest in me with quietness and with confidence. See, what Isaiah's core message is, is to trust in the Lord. To have confidence. But that confidence is not self-confidence, but it is Savior confidence. And that right there is Isaiah in a nutshell. He is tasked by the Lord to encourage God's people to move from self-confidence to Savior confidence. To stay in the lane and wait. Brian Chapel once pointed out that runners actually do better when they keep their chin up, when they actually look up and out, not down. And it's kind of counterintuitive, in a way paradoxical, because when we're tired, if you've ever been running... We want to put our heads down. We want to sort of bear it. We want to look down. We want to look down at our feet. But this actually wears us down in our bodies. This actually wears us down even in our spirits. But when we look up and we look out to the horizon, our legs feel lighter. Isaiah would say to all who are weary running the race, and if that's you, listen, all who are weary running the race, Isaiah would say, look up. And look beyond. The relief is not in here. That's for sure. And the relief is not down here. That's for sure. The relief is beyond you. It's there. You just have to wait for it. It's up. It's out. It's on the horizon. Now, if that's Isaiah's ministry in a nutshell, I want to take some time to look at the bigger picture of Isaiah. Because that's, after all, what we're up to in this sermon series. We want to explore the bigger picture of the Bible and how Isaiah might fit into the story of God. We want to understand, maybe even for the first time, introduce the book of Isaiah to you so that you can study it with more confidence. And the way we're going to do that this morning is by connecting Isaiah's book to Isaiah's background. I think too often we sort of detach Isaiah's words. And there are so many beautiful words in this book from his historical setting. One of my favorite stores ever is called American Spoon. Have you guys been to American Spoon before? You guys know what that is? No? No? Yes, you know what that is. I know you know what that is. Uh, They basically make preserves and salsa. And what happens is you walk into their little store and they have this buffet with like every jelly and preserve and salsa that you can imagine. And they basically invite you to walk in and dip your chip into whatever salsa or preserve you want. And you can do that all afternoon. You can even eat lunch that way and walk out the door. That's okay. It's just their model. I love it. But isn't that how we have sort of approach Isaiah, right? We, we dip our chip into this verse. We dip our chip into that verse. We sort of, you know, 
go about it in a piecemeal way, which is better than nothing, by the way, but how much better is it if we understood the background into which God speaks these amazing words? And that's how we're going to get a grip on Isaiah, the big picture. We're going to connect the book to the background. And what I'm about to teach you, I learned from a late, great Old Testament scholar, Alec Motier. And if I'm honest, without help, and this may encourage you, without help, like the help I received from him, Isaiah makes my brain turn to mush when I try to understand it. I think that's why we approach it like salsa. But he's helped clear the fog for me, and I want to pass that on to you. He taught me that Isaiah is really a book with three parts. Chapters 1 through 37, chapters 38 through 55, and chapters 56 through 66. And we could sort of understand each of these sections as Isaiah responding to a unique historical problem. Or in his words, a crisis. And so the prophet of God is always called upon to speak God's words to a particular problem, to a particular issue. And we could sort of summarize those issues like this. The failure of David's throne, the problem of idolatry, and then life after exile. And I want to take a look at each with you briefly. So in the first section, Isaiah is responding to the problem of Judah's kings, the heirs of David's throne. If you've been with us through kings, you know that this is a a thing. And specifically, King Ahaz and King Hezekiah. Just remember those names. Ahaz, say it after me. Ahaz? Ahaz. Hezekiah. Ahaz and his son, Hezekiah, are kings in Judah. Remember, Judah is in the south and all of Israel is above them. Now, I want you to remember three things from our time in Kings and Samuel before today. First of all this, remember that God's kings were meant to reflect or represent the R on the circle. Remember, they are called to represent God accurately and winsomely to Israel and to the whole world. That was their unique calling. They were an R on top of the circle that is God's people. And second, remember from Samuel that God promised David, King David, a throne that would not perish, but would be eternal and that would last forever. And he compared it often to a lamp. And if you were with us last week, you saw that lamp burning. And God said, I'm going to keep this lamp burning. Why? Because I said I would. And God keeps his promises. And third thing I want you to remember is that this means Ahaz and Hezekiah, those are the people you just said out loud, they were kings of Judah. They were kings in Jerusalem. They were David's heirs. And therefore, they were designed by God to do what? Represent and to reflect accurately and winsomely God's ways to Israel and to the whole world. To carry David's lamp. This won't surprise you, probably, by now, but Ahaz and Hezekiah fail in this calling. I want to talk about Ahaz first. He was king in tiny Judah, and Assyria, at the time, was like the world superpower. Well, when Judah is attacked by Judah's neighbors, not Assyria yet, but two neighbors, Israel above them and Syria, I know that's super confusing. You're like, Assyria, Syria, what? Okay, just track with me. 
Judah, tiny Judah, is attacked. And we read these words from Isaiah 7 2. Well, not those words. We read these words. It says that the heart of Ahaz and his people shook as the trees of the forest shake before the wind. So if you've ever been deeply afraid, this image is powerful. And this is where Isaiah steps in and he says these words. Be careful. Be quiet. Do not fear. And do not let your heart be faint because of these two smoldering stumps of firebrands. Now, who are the two smoldering stumps of firebrands? The attacking nations, Israel and Syria. And so Isaiah's message to Ahaz, the king of Judah, is basically just the same thing we saw earlier. Wait. Wait on me, and I will bring victory. Just wait on me. This is the paradoxical victory in the face of danger. Ahaz has a choice, basically, at this point, right? Ahaz has a choice to rest or to scheme, to wait or to take the long detour, because moving in the wrong direction is better than not moving at all. Well, he turns out of traffic and drives around. He pays off the big superpower, Assyria, for protection against these two people coming down on him. And the scary thing is, is it kind of worked. It kind of worked, actually, at least for a little while, at least for Ahaz's lifetime. But we're left wondering, if we're reading Isaiah, we're left wondering at what cost did that move cost? Which takes us to his son. Who's his son? Remember the word? Hezekiah. I feel like I'm in Sunday school. This is great. Hezekiah. Hezekiah. Ahaz sold his soul in a way to the superpower Assyria for a few years of comfort. And then his son Hezekiah, well, he just follows in daddy's footsteps. Think of it that way. But for Hezekiah, it wasn't Assyria. It was Egypt below. And this is why Isaiah says in chapter 30, which we already saw, only in returning to me and resting in me will you be saved. These are words to Hezekiah, okay? In quietness and in confidence is your strength. But you would have none of it. You said, no, we will get our help from Egypt. They will give us swift horses for riding in the battle. And then God says, but the only swiftness you're going to see is the swiftness of your enemies chasing you. So Hezekiah is basically repeating Ahaz's issue. And Isaiah has a similar word to Hezekiah. But I'll say this. Unlike his father Ahaz, Hezekiah appears sensitive to God's word. And so later, Assyria comes knocking on the temple's door. And then Hezekiah kind of has a come to Jesus moment. He pursues God's word. He pursues God's word by pursuing Isaiah. And Isaiah basically says, thank you. Goodness gracious. I've been saying this all along. Like All I've been saying is just trust in God's word. That's all I'm saying is just rest in my promises, says the Lord. And he will win your battle. And here, Hezekiah, finally, you're doing it. And guess what happens? God performs his word. And Assyria is like breathing down the neck of, of, of the temple and of Jerusalem backs off. And more than backs off, we read actually that an angel of the Lord basically turns them away and destroys so many in their camp. And Judah, for the moment, is 
spared. And friends, that is section one of Isaiah. So if you're studying Isaiah at home, keep those two kings in the front of your mind and keep their rebellions in front of their mind and how they trusted in other things besides the Lord. But let's talk about section two briefly, which are chapters 38 through 55. So Hezekiah's momentary trust in God remains just that momentary because it sadly starts to fade in the rearview mirror. And at the end of his life, Assyria is no longer the world's superpower, but, do you know? Babylon is. Babylon. And so guess what? He remembers trusting in Egypt, and he just does the same with Babylon. He makes an alliance with Babylon for safety. Which, like all sin, is an accusation against God. God, you are not strong enough to protect me. You are not powerful enough to protect me. You're not good enough to guide my life. You're not wise enough to guide this decision. You're not powerful enough to keep me safe. And so I am going to make an alliance with somebody else. That is the core root of basically any sin that we've ever committed in our whole entire life. And so that's why all throughout this section, Isaiah doesn't just call out Hezekiah for making an alliance, but all of Judah, all of God's people, his alliance in a way is just symbolic of their heart posture too. They're making alliances with that which is not God to provide what only God can provide. It's when we trust in God's good creation to be the creator. It's when we ask of God's good gifts, things that they can never give us, which is the Lord himself. That's idolatry. And so God says to Hezekiah through Isaiah, he says these words, Behold, the days are coming when all that is in your house and that which your fathers have stored up to this day shall be carried to Babylon. Nothing shall be left, says the Lord. And that should make us weep. I mean, one of the benefits of going through the Bible like we've been doing, like from beginning all the way through end, is we have this buildup. God promises to bless the nations through this small ragtag group. And suddenly, here we are. And suddenly there's so much promise for this kingdom to bless the world and to reflect God's ways and God's good wisdom to the whole world. And this is how it all culminates. That is tragic. And if it's tragic to us, think about how tragic it was to them. Think about what a sort of faith destroyer this news would be. And how hard it would be to trust God in His Word. And we know from last week that this triggers the unthinkable. Babylon sacks Jerusalem, destroys the temple, decimates the throne. And we should be asking at the end of section 2 of Isaiah... How does this square with God's promise to bless the nations through David's throne? This doesn't square with that at all. Which takes us to section 3, life after exile. In these chapters, God depicts a complicated future after the Babylonian exile. So Isaiah will not live to see this actually. But he tells us that it will be a complicated existence for God's people. Because on the one hand, God will end their exile. And that is great news. In God's weird providence, he raises up a ruler named Cyrus. Of Persia. 
the new superpower. This is how I remembered it in seminary. A, B, C. Assyria, Babylon, Cyrus. That's for free. First it was Assyria. Then it was Babylon. And yeah, now it is, Syria, now it is I'm sorry, Persia with Cyrus on top. And this strange providential move, God is going to use Cyrus to basically bring the exiles back into their city, Jerusalem. And so that's good, right? But on the other hand, Isaiah talks about how this post-exile existence is going to be terrible. It's not Eden. It's, more, it's, it's not like Eden at all. In fact, it's more like the garden that I tried to keep about 10 years ago in my backyard. Overrun with weeds, poorly tended, not watered. A disaster, really. See, post-exile for Judah would be like moving away from your childhood home with great memories and then moving back with excitement and with nostalgia. But then when you get back, everything is terrible. Your friends are gone. Your favorite restaurants are closed. It's a ghost town. The mayor is bad. He's a crook. And so you ache. You ache because of what was before. That's the picture of the last section. It's basically a giant ache. Isaiah describes it this way. Jerusalem's watchmen are blind. They are all without knowledge. And this is a pretty profound image. He says, they are silent dogs. They cannot bark. The watchmen, these are the ones that are called to protect God's people, the leaders of the day. There's no king on the throne. The king, remember, that's been destroyed. The monarchy's over. And so there are leaders, of course, there are sort of lowercase k kings, if you will, but they're like dogs that don't bark. They're not doing what they're supposed to. It's overrun with corruption. It's overrun with all kinds of problems. Not only that, but Israel is going to forever be under the thumb of, a, of an empire. And so again, like we're asking ourselves, like what on earth is happening? Like I thought this little sort of nation was going to bless the world, and instead the world is sort of just over it. How's that happening? And that's a tension. It's a tension that we could call returned but not rescued. What happened to the lamp? Is it still burning? But in all of this mess, Isaiah is consistent. He calls on its readers and listeners to what? To look up and to look out. He sees, uh, despite all of this mess, all of this leadership abuse, he assumes, Isaiah, throughout all of his book, he assumes that there are a few folks who want different. Don't you want different? Yes, as goes the leaders, so goes the people. That is true. But that does not mean there aren't true believers within that circle who want to trust in the Lord through all this junk. And that's who Isaiah is addressing so often in this book. So Isaiah addresses these folks in chapter 51. He says, listen to me, all you who pursue righteousness, you who seek the Lord, look to the rock. Forget the leaders around you. Look to the rock from which you were hewn. And to the quarry from which you were dug. Stop looking at the circumstances. I know it's hard to trust. Just look at the rock from which you were hewn. Keep your eyes up. Keep your eyes out. Because you are seeking the Lord and that is a good thing. And when you do that, guess what? You will see a coming king. 
you will see a coming king. And maybe that's you this morning. You know you're broken by your own sin. You know you're broken by the sins of others around you and over you. But you are seeking the Lord. You are seeking Him. You're on a searching journey for all that is good, true, and beautiful in the Lord. And it's hard work to seek after the Lord in our current circumstances. Well, if that's you, if you're tired of your sin, if you're sick and tired of, of the sin of those over you, then Isaiah has a good word. Look up, look out. You see, all throughout Isaiah, this is something Moya points out, in all three sections that we just looked at, there are four descriptions of a coming king in each. That's 12 total. In each section of darkness, in other words, there is a silhouette of light times four. And this person, this human lamp, is the only answer to all of their problems. I'll put it this way. So to the first section, 1 through 37, to the failure of David's throne, we see a coming king, and we see it described for us in these four sections. To the problem of idolatry, we see a suffering servant who is to come, and we see it in all four of those sections. And to the problem of life after exile, we see a vicarious victor, which comes in those four sections. Recently, I've been watching Bob Ross uh, with my boys before bedtime. It's like visual melatonin. Uh, well, last week, Bob did something I've never seen him do before. He basically painted with a pitch black canvas. So, he, you know, canvases don't come pitch black. So what did he do? He painted black gesso over it. Well, that's the story of the world, according to Isaiah. Our sin and rebellion covered the canvas of God's good creation with dark gesso. But Isaiah would also say this darkness provides a contrast for the bright silhouette on the horizon. Isaiah says, wait on this coming king. And I think this is how we're going to end our time in Isaiah. By listening to Isaiah. By quietly, slowly, restfully, Receiving these promises about the burning soul to come, about the one we know to be Jesus. I don't have time to read every single one of these verses with you all this morning, but I want to read portions of each. And I would just encourage you to take your deepest concerns in your hands right now and imagine dropping them as you set your eyes the eyes of your heart on this bright silhouette who we know to be Jesus if it helps to close your eyes I would encourage you to do that if it helps to look outside I would encourage you to do that maybe look down or even follow along with your Bible but here's the point. We're going to do what Isaiah says. We're going to receive the rest in the promise. So first set your eyes on the coming king.
of Ahaz and Hezekiah and every human ruler after them. Trust in their own schemes over against the Lord, wounding themselves and wounding others. I want you to rest instead in this coming king. 9-2. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwell in a land of deep darkness on them has light shown. Verse 6. For to us a child is born. To us a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulder. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice, with rightness, from this time forth and forevermore. And the zeal of the Lord will do this. 11.1 There will come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse. Jesse was David's dad. And a branch from his roots shall bear fruit, and the Spirit of the Lord will rest upon him. We see this. The Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the Spirit of counsel and might, the Spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. His delight shall be on the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge what his eyes see, or decide disputes by what his ears hear. But with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. And he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist and faithfulness the belt of his loins. In that day the root of Jesse, who shall stand as a signal for the peoples, of him shall the nations inquire. And his resting place shall be glorious. This coming one is Jesus, both the shoot and the root of Jesse. Both divine and human. 32.1 Behold, a king will reign in righteousness. Princes will rule in justice. Each will be like a hiding place from the wind. Your circumstances feel like wind. A shelter from the storm. Or a storm. Like streams of water in a dry place. A dry place. Like the shade of a great rock in a weary land. 33.17 Your eyes will behold the king and his people. They will see a land that stretches afar. And if section one is about bad kings, but one beautiful coming king, we're left asking, how can this coming king, this Emmanuel, be beautiful if we ourselves are sinners like the king? Well, that's why we need to read on, because section two tells us more about this coming king. This coming king is also a suffering servant. A suffering servant who is humble and gentle with the broken. 42.1, behold my servant, whom I uphold, my chosen, and whom my soul delights. I put my spirit upon him, and he will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice, think of Jesus, or make it heard in the streets. No, a bruised reed he will not break. And a faintly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. 49.6 The Lord says, It is too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob. No, no, I'm going to do more. I'm going to make you as a light to the nations that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. This coming king is a suffering servant whose faithfulness and obedience to God's word happened even when it was expensive. So 50 verse 5, I was not rebellious. This is the servant speaking. I turn not backward. I gave my back to those who strike and my cheeks to those who pull out the beard. 
I didn't hide my face from disgrace or spitting, but the Lord God helps me. Therefore, I have not been disgraced. Therefore, I have set my face like a flint, and I know that I shall not be put to shame. His face is set like a flint to come out of love for you. And this suffering servant uses his authority to bear our sins. Again, verse 3, he was despised. In chapter 52, he was despised and rejected by men. A man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one who, from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs, carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him, this suffering servant, this king, this coming king, the iniquity of us all. He poured out his soul to death, verse 12, and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many, and he makes intercession for the transgressors. Rest in this coming king who is also the suffering servant. And lastly, the vicarious victor. So vicarious just means in the place of another. And that's what this means. The victory of this coming king is going to be our victory because we have no trust but in him. 59 verse 20. The redeemer will come to Jerusalem to buy back those in Israel who have turned, their, turned from their sins, says the Lord. And then verse 1 through 3 of chapter 61. Jesus actually read these verses in his hometown synagogue. The spirit of the sovereign Lord is upon me. For the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to comfort the brokenhearted. Is that you? To proclaim that captives will be released and prisoners will be freed. He has sent me to tell those who mourn that the time of the Lord's favor has come. And this passage actually continues. And everybody knows that it continues. But Jesus stops here when he reads it. Why? Because Jesus in his ministry divides his work into two Advents. Advent 1 and Advent 2. In Advent 1, there's this peaceful offer of salvation. In Advent 2, we, we see judgment for sin when he comes again. If he's coming in a donkey in Advent 1, he comes on a war house, a war horse. In Advent 2, we see that in Mafalas. And with it, the day of God's anger against their enemies. And so God, through Isaiah, sets our eyes on a coming Redeemer who will set things right in the end. Who will, with royal robes, marching with great strength, announce salvation. For the time has come, verse 4 of 63, for me to avenge my people, to ransom them from their oppressors. I was amazed to see that no one intervened to help the oppressed. And so I myself stepped in to save them with my strong arm, and my wrath sustained me. I crushed the nations in my anger and made them stagger and fall to the ground, spilling their blood upon the earth. This is to quote Gary Haugen, the good news about injustice. God will make things right, and he will do so with perfection. Now, how can we welcome this justice that we just read about without trembling fear while we look to the coming victor who is also the coming husband for his bride? And this is how Isaiah closes. For us today. Chapter 62. Because my heart yearns for Jerusalem. I cannot remain silent. Friends this is Jesus for you. I will not stop praying for her. Until her righteousness shines like the dawn. And her salvation blazes like a burning torch. The nations will see your righteousness. World leaders will be blinded by your glory. 
and you'll be given a new name by the Lord's own mouth. The Lord will hold you in his hand for all to see, a splendid crown in the hand of God. Never again will you be called the forsaken city or the desolate land. Your new name will be the city of God's delight, the bride of God. For the Lord delights in you and will claim you as his bride. Your children will commit themselves to you, O Jerusalem, just as a young man commits himself to his bride. And then God will rejoice over you as a bridegroom rejoices over his bride. Friends, this is the coming one that we are asked to receive. Last week I was waiting in an elevator to come down at our hotel. It was taking forever. And so in these moments, I want to go up the stairs and stop waiting. She probably should do it anyway. But Isaiah would tell you, don't do it. Just wait. Trust in the coming one. He will get you. This is your paradoxical victory. You win by letting go. By resting. So accept his victory this Advent. The coming king has come. And Jesus, the suffering servant, has suffered in our place. In the cross, the victor has won at the cross So rest now in his victory. And Lord, we do that. We are in a way overwhelmed by all these promises that you give in the middle of darkness. But Lord, that is your way. Would we learn to wait for them, Lord? Would we learn to rest in them this morning? It's in your name we pray this. Thanks for tuning in. For more information about our church and for more resources like this, visit our website at hopechurchcolumbus.org.